Father, I feel so inadequate to tackle this enormous subject, the Feast of Israel. There's so much truth in it, Father, I don't know how to get it all out. But I just give this time to you, Father. Let your Holy Spirit take control and that we will move in to some of the very deep things of God and get a glimpse of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, we're going to talk about the Feast of Israel. And in order to talk about the Feast of Israel, it helps a lot if we understand the calendar of Israel, because it's not the same calendar that we use. It's a lunar calendar. In the West, uh, we use a solar calendar. Uh, Most Asian countries traditionally have a a lunar calendar. And that kind of affects the way the whole year works. So I'm going to explain the Hebrew calendar as we begin. And initially, I'm going to talk a little bit about our own calendar, because if you want to go somewhere, you have to know where you're starting from. So I just want to make sure we understand the mechanics of our own Gregorian calendar. We'll come to the Hebrew calendar. Then we'll go through a typical Hebrew year. Now, today I aim to complete talking about the um, spring feasts of Israel. And then in two weeks' time, we'll pick up and go with the fall feasts, autumn feasts in your version of English. Now, I will try and get you home for supper, okay? But it's quite a long, complex subject. Now, the Gregorian calendar. Now, a true solar year, which is what our calendar is based on, is 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45 seconds long. So there's your basic unit of measure. Run with it. Well, this is only the average. The actual can actually vary by up to half an hour. It can be a quarter of an hour each way. The other planets have a gravitational pull on our planet, and so the Earth can be 15 minutes, can get around the sun 15 minutes faster, maybe 15 minutes slower, but the average is the number given. In decimal, that's 365.24219 days, and the Gregorian calendar, which is what we use today, assumes a year of 365.24.25 days. Differs from a true solar year by an insignificant 26 seconds. In the 6,000 years of, the, of this Earth's history, that 26 seconds doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Now, the year is not 365.25 days, which is what the old Julian calendar, which we used to use, assumed. It's slightly less. That is 365.24.25. Now, over a few years, that's insignificant. Uh, but over the centuries, it added up. In fact, it was in England. It was the Venerable Bede noticed that the moon wasn't at the right place for Easter. And he said, there's something wrong here. It took a few more years for them to realise that, yes, we were actually counting the, 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 uh, the number of days in the year incorrectly. And um, so they adjusted to something called the Gregorian calendar. So the rules are, uh, every year is 365 days, except when the year divides by four, and you all know that. Uh, when it, then it's 366 days. Uh, except it divides by 100. When ordinarily it's only 365, except when it divides by 400, then it's 366. So this year, 2019, is not a leap year. Next year, 2020, divides by 4, so it will be. Doesn't divide by 100, because it doesn't divide by 400. Uh, the year 1900 divided by 100, uh, but was not a leap year. It did divide by 4, but it also divided by 100, so it was not a leap year. The year 2000 divides by 4, 100 and 400, therefore the year 2000 was a leap year. 2100, if we ever see it, uh, won't be a leap year. Uh, It was invented by an Italian scientist, Aloysius Lilius, uh, but we've all forgotten about him and it's credited to Pope Gregory and such is the lot of the working man. Um, 
It's now really used around the world for business, but if you go to Asian countries um, or even Israel, Islamic countries, they have their own calendars for their holidays, their feasts, um, but they have used our calendar for, for doing business. Uh, the English-speaking countries actually adopted the calendar quite late, in 1752, and at that point, not only did they have to change to the new rules, but they had to drop some, an excess number of days from the calendar to get us back in line with, with uh, the, the, the sun and with the, the, the church feasts as they then were. And so September the 2nd, 1752, was followed by September the 14th, 1752. And it was a bit like Brexit. People were very upset. There were people outside Whitehall writing because they said the government's taken away 10, years from, 10, 10 days from their lives. Of course, you then had to try and explain to them these are not real days, these are only notional days. But we're now on this calendar. So having got that... Uh, under our belt, I want to talk about the, the Hebrew calendar. Um, the Gregorian calendar has months, but they're not true months. A true month is a lunation of the moon, the time it takes for the moon to circumnavigate the earth. Um, Israel's calendar was given by God at the time of the Exodus. Uh, it says in Exodus 12, 2, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, Israel's calendar is lunisolar. It is a lunar calendar with adjustments to keep it in line with the sun. The basic unit of the Hebrew calendar is the lunar month. Uh, and this is the equivalent of a lunation, which sounds simple, but there's a little more to it than first meets the eye. The period of the month's, the moon's orbit is defined with respect to a notional fixed position, otherwise known as celestial sphere, sphere is known as a sidereal month because it's the time it takes the moon to return to the same position in space. Now, let me explain what that gobbledygook means in plain English. If you're an observatory on Earth, there's something called a celestial sphere. It's everything you can see from that observatory. It's a fixed point. And the moon would appear to return to the same point after a certain number of days, which is 27 days, 7 hours, 43 minutes, and 11.5 seconds. However, that doesn't help us much here on Earth because it's actually not in the same position if you're standing on planet Earth. Um, <clears throat> we need to know when the moon appears in the same point on the Earth's, service, so Earth's surface. So we may introduce the synodic month, and we're very close to the Hebrew month now. The synodic month is the average period of the moon's revolution with respect to the sun. Uh, the synodic month is responsible for the phases of the moon. So at the beginning of the lunar month, we see a, the new moon, then on the 15th of the lunar month, we see the full moon. Very significant in, in Jewish feasts, by the way, and we'll get to that. Um, this is because the moon's position, the moon's appearance depends on the position of the moon in relation to the sun as seen from Earth. While the moon is orbiting the Earth, the Earth is progressing in its orbit around the sun. That means after completing a sidereal month, the moon must move a little further to reach the new position of the Earth with respect to the sun. This longer period is called the synodic month. The actual time between these perceived lunations is 29.27 uh, to about 29.83 days. They vary very slightly. Uh, the long-term average is 29 days, 12 hours and 44 minutes and 2.8 seconds. So a Hebrew month is approximately one lunation, or 29 and one-half days. Now, you can't end a month on half a day. So actually, the Hebrew months go 30 days, 29 days, 30 days, 29 days, 30 days, 29 days, so on. Um, Twelve lunations 
uh, <clears throat> gives us 354 days, 8 hours, 48 minutes and 34 seconds. In practice, 12 lunar months gives us 354 days. Now, 354 days is approximately 11 and a quarter days short of a solar year. So uh, the calendar which God gave to Israel adjusts for that. And every time the Hebrew year would fall more than 30 days behind the uh, solar year, or one of our years, uh, then they add an extra month, the Adar. Um, what happens is uh, you have the month of Shabbat, Shabbat uh, and normally that's followed by Adar. Uh, but when uh, they fall more than 30, day, 30 days behind the sun, the Adar is inserted and the normal Adar moves on two days. That's important because Purim is celebrated in Adar, so on the what are called plenary or four years, it moves down to there. Let's go back to the first page again, if we could. So these are the months. Uh, the first month of the year, uh, which is the time of Passover. This was when God gave the calendar as Israel left Egypt. Uh, called Aviv at the time, but during the, the Babylonian captivity became known as Nisan. It's 30 days. Er, 29 days. Uh, also called Siv. Uh, Siv means blossom. At that time of the year, all the blossoms are out. Oh, that's lovely. The month is called Blossom, and the, and, the, and the fields and the countryside is in Blossom. Sivan, 30 days. Tammuz, not to be confused with the idol, 29 days. Av, roughly uh, the same as August, 30 days. Elul, 29 days. Uh, Tishri, very important month. That's when the high holidays are, 30 days. Barchazvan, normally 29 days. I'll come back to that in a moment. Kislev, uh, 30 days. Tevet, 29 days. Shivat, 30 days. Adar, 30. Uh, or the Adar, 30. The normal Adar, 29 days. Now, there is this funny business going on here in Marchesan, or Kesan, and Hislet. That's because the rabbis don't want Yom Kippur to occur on a Sunday. So they fiddle it. And if, if, uh, if Yom Kippur would occur on a Sunday in the following year, the year before, they, they make... Marches found 30 days, so that puts the whole calendar a day ahead, so that, so that Yom Kippur is not on a Sunday. The following year, of course, they don't have to have two months of 29 days to bring it back in line. Now, there is a, a sect called the Karaites, very pure form of Judaism. They won't do that. So during those years, their calendars are out of line with mainstream Judaism. Okay, the Hebrew calendar. Now, we're, we're getting somewhere. It's also worth noting that we start our day at midnight. Uh, the Jewish day starts at sunset. Actually, it, it's uh, sunset or when the three brightest stars appear in the sky according to the religious purposes. So Shabbat starts as soon as the sun goes down, but to make sure they don't end it too, too early, they wait until the three bright stars are visible in the sky and then Shabbat is over. And it's actually the, the evening of the first day is considered a, a, a time of celebration. It's like a, uh, it's, it's a happy time. So we're going to discuss the Hebrew year in such a way to end at its high point, both practically and prophetically. That's at Sukkot or Tabernacles, which is in the seventh month. Go back to the first. Thank you. So we're going to start briefly just covering some of the things we, we've discussed in the past. We're going to start with Hanukkah uh, in the month Kislev. 
and the events of Hanukkah, as we've discussed before, occurred during the intertestament period. The date was about 164 BC. However, as we saw, much of the story is prophesied in Daniel chapter 11, and the events are historically verifiable. God delivered Israel through one family of the tribe of Levi, and we can learn about God through the story and be encouraged. Even the darkest days, God is, God's hand is on us, and it just takes uh, one or two souls brave enough to stand up for the right thing, and God can move. Uh, then there's a minor holiday called Tu B'Shvat on the 15th day of the Jewish month Shivat. This year, that our December is Hanukkah. Tu It's the new year for trees. And uh, Jewish homes will eat fresh fruit on that day. They may plant a tree. And lots of children will, Jewish children, collect money together to send to Israel to plant trees. Of course, when, when God restored Israel to the land, it was largely desert. And now there are, there are forests in Israel. Uh, the word of God is always true, and Israel is nothing like it was uh, when the Jews started returning to their land. Um, <clears throat> and uh, then comes the holiday of Purim. Remember, we, we went through the book of Esther uh, not so long ago. That occurs in the final month of the year, uh, Adar. It's either the 12th month or 13th month. Uh, those months, to, to stay in line with the sun, in a 19-year cycle... Uh, there are seven leap years. So it's typically, it's the third, the sixth, and then uh, eighth. And you get so often, it's only two years between them. But in a 19-year cycle, uh, the moon and the sun are within two hours of each other, and the two calendars actually do mesh up at that point. It's called a metonic cycle. If you study Bible chronology, you'll know all about metonic cycles. You'll be fed up with metonic cycles. But if, if ever you've seen an Episcopal or Catholic prayer book, you'll find at the back page there's something called golden numbers. They work out where Easter is according to these cycles of 19 years. So, Purim in the month Adar. They would, uh, it's this Adar which occurs here on a normal year. It's called a civil year. When you have the extra month, it's a plenary year. We know about Purim from the book of Esther. Haman became prime minister of of the Persian Empire. He was a descendant of Agag, the man that Saul wouldn't slay. And that act of disobedience came back to haunt the, haunt the Jews. He decided, one Jew had offended him, Mordecai, he wanted to destroy the entire Jewish population. When you see that, you know it's demonic. We know uh, that when a certain political party rose in Germany and wanted to destroy all the Jews, it was evil, it was demonic. By the way, the people who did it are still responsible uh, the rabbis don't like to hear that it was demonic because they say, no, that makes them not responsible. It says it was some spiritual force. We hold those people responsible, and they are responsible. But it's definitely, uh, when you see that sort of evil, uh, it's even beyond the, the depths of even the heart of man. That's a spiritual thing going on. And if you're a Gentile Christian, Purim matters without you. Without Purim, there's no Jewish people Without Jewish people, there is no Messiah. Without Messiah, there's no salvation, there's no church. We wouldn't be here this morning. Our righteous Messiah said to a Gentile woman in Samaria in John 42, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. We're born again this morning because of a small people from the Middle East. Next, you'll be relieved to hear we come to the Levitical feasts or the feasts of the Lord, the feasts of Adonai or the feasts of yud heh vav -Hey.
We call them the Feast of Israel, but actually they're God's own feast. And some Christians actually like to do something when these things occur. So Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee in the time appointed in the month Abib. For in it thou camest out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labours, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labours out of the field. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Now, Torah, or the law, in a sense, was given twice. Uh, we go through Exodus, and we have uh, the Decalogue giving, and then we read about Moses in the tent of meeting, and God is literally dictating these instructions to him. Then 40 years later, at the end of Moses' life, and the people are about to go into the land, he's seen how they behaved, he's seen how difficult it was to shepherd these people, and he gives it all again in the light of experience. So in Deuteronomy, we almost go over the entire Torah again, but, but in the light of Moses' experience. So Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles. And they shall appear before the Lord, they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord, the, thy God which he hath given thee. The thought here is the head of each household at least should attend the feast of the Lord. It was to be a time of happiness and joy uh, and, and well-being. And it was when God and his people would enjoy each other's company. The place that he chose was Jerusalem, um, Shiloh at first, but then David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites. That became Israel's capital, the place that God put his hand on. And they were gathered there three times a year. And it was... Um, a time when God enjoyed having his people around him. They enjoyed the fellowship with God and with each other. Uh, a slight difference there from the Christian view. We all know we're born again, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. We're aware of the presence of God all the time. The Jewish experience is not like that. If, if a Jew says to a rabbi, I kind of know God, he's likely to have a clipped ear and told not to be blasphemous because the Jew doesn't believe he can know, his, know God personally. To the Jewish person, it's the nation that knows God. It's the nation that serves God. They are just part of that. It's not a personal thing. And, and sometimes you, you try to share with Jews and you have to come from that perspective that just like anybody else, they don't have a personal relationship with God. They don't believe they have one. It's, it's, it's a, a national thing. The nation has a relationship Israel is the son, they're just part of it. Um, and God wanted the head of each household to come. If someone had to stay home and milk the cows, it wasn't to be the head of household. Obviously, he could bring as many of his family as he liked, and as they got nearer to Jerusalem, they would see friends. They'd only meet those three times a year. They may stay in similar areas. They'd have fellowship with the same, same people that he'd been seeing over the years. Uh, but it was a, a joyful time. Um, And as I say, these are not just the feasts of Israel. These are the feasts of the Lord. They're commemorative. They teach the believer God's character, but they're also prophetic. Um, July 4th can teach the United States about her past, the, the birth of the nation, but it teaches the United States of America nothing about her future. The fact that on July the 4th there'll be fireworks and, and uh, barbecues and so forth and, and people put the flag up, 
is great because it says this is where we became a nation. It doesn't say when the United States is going to end. It doesn't say anything about the future. But the feasts of Israel are actually prophetic. They all teach something about the plan of God. Not only where Israel had come from, but where she's going. None shall appear before me empty. This is a command and a promise. They were to bring their tithes and present to the Lord. Um, but it's also a promise. As they obeyed God, their farms would prosper. They would have crops. They would have livestock to bring in. So it was both a command and a blessing. And the poor were to be cared for. No one was to arrive with nothing. If you had a poor neighbor whose crop had failed, it was your place to make sure they went with a full hand uh, as they went to Israel to bless God. And God promised that as Israel kept the feast, their enemies would not desire the land. Uh, Naturally speaking, they would be... um, exposed to danger because their borders be unguarded all the men are in jerusalem um yet in time because israel was obedient to god her borders would be extended uh three times israel was to gather but it was to keep seven feasts there are three in the spring one a couple of months later shavuot or pentecost and then three three uh uh holidays in the fall the autumn uh, Leviticus 23, verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which she shall proclaim in their seasons. Firstly, Passover and unleavened bread. Now, Passover is not the greatest of feasts in Scripture. That goes to tabernacles um, in the seventh month. However, Passover is a means. Tabernacles is the end. However, Passover is the starting point of Jewish history and in fact there's a major road sign a major uh, point in the history of salvation once there was a nation Israel there was a nation that God could start to work his plan out through Um, Passover is if you will Israel's 4th of July is when they began and of course it points that's when you look back but it points to Calvary for Jews, Passover is pri- primarily a family occasion. Israel made bricks in Egypt, while God made a nation from the bricks, bricks that the, were the families of Israel. Those few would come in, uh, 70 souls, but they grown, and, the fam- and, and that family had become many families, that had become tribes. And those were the bricks that God was going to make a nation. And in fact, a nation is as strong as its families. And really, I fear for both the UK and the US at this time because the family is, is being weakened, uh, particularly concerning, as, as an American citizen, that the African-American community is so weak. It's only something like 23% of African-Americans' homes, the father figure is at home. Uh, many of them, the, fa- the father left. It's the mother raising the children. And that makes for a very weak family. And, and I'm very well, there, there are things in my own life in that regard, Thank God for his grace. Um, but in, in the UK, and we have this business now, families with two mothers and two fathers. And look, we're not in the job of hating people and pointing the finger despising. If people have real psychological needs, I'm absolutely no doubt there are people who really do have wrong sexual desires for, for the same sex. It's our job to give them the truth, give them the gospel, to love them, to help them. It's not our God our job to point the finger but when a society says it's okay two men can get married well that's one thing then it's oh but you can adopt children or have children by strange means there's one case recently uh a man's mother had his her own grandson because 
the man's husband, if you will, uh, had managed to have a baby with his mother. Well, this is confusion. Uh, it's not making for a strong family, and it's, it's not helping society at large. We are really weakening ourselves by endorsing this sort of activity. Israel came out of Egypt with strong families. They've been born in persecution. Literally, when you have nothing, the husband and the wife clung, clung to each other in the, in the pattern which, John, which God gives. He talks about a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife. Well, when she and your children are all you have, then you cleave together. And those families came out strong. So on the evening of Passover, Jewish families everywhere remember their deliverance from Egypt. Uh, Exodus 12.42 says, It is a night to be much remembered. Before God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he defeated the gods of Egypt. The ten plagues we read about were all very specific attacks on Egyptian deities. The gods of Egypt were publicly humiliated by the God of Israel. The gods of Egypt couldn't protect couldn't protect Egypt, uh, the God of Israel brought his own people out. God showed that the God, our God showed that the gods of Egypt were futile. And Yeshua, our Jesus, has defeated every spiritual enemy that has caused us to fear. Satan and his kingdom are under our feet. That doesn't mean it's not real, but they are a defeated foe. We're just waiting for the, um, for the fulfillment of God's plan. But at Calvary, God defeated him for all time. Exodus 12, verses 3 through 11. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take unto them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, who were in the month of Beeb, or Nisan. Uh, they shall take, every, take to them every man a lamb, according to to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating uh, shall you make your count for the lamb. So they knew what their appetites were like, and they were going to be marching the next day so they were to eat a, a meal sufficient to keep them on that march. Your lamb should be without blemish, a male of the first year shall, shall you take it from the sheep or from the goats. And he shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat it not raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinences thereof. And he shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. That which remaineth until the morning, it shall be burnt with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with your loins girded, with your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They were told to take this meal in Egypt, ready to leave. Now, there was no sign at the point they were going to leave, because Pharaoh said, no, I will not let your people go. But they were to eat in faith that that night they would be leaving Egypt. Remember the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. We have a Passover lamb. God's judgment passed over us. We didn't deserve that, but we have a Passover lamb. 
Revelation 13, 8 tells us Jesus was slain from the foundation of the earth. The Bible also says in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now it's about 4,000 years from creation when Adam fell to Calvary. God had set his son aside as soon as mankind fell to be that lamb to take away the sin of the world. Everybody's sin. You only, re- you only receive salvation if you accept that free pardon, but it's sufficient for every soul that's ever lived. God dealt with sin once and for all. How foolish when people refuse this salvation. So for four days, that little lamb lived in the home with the family. And can you imagine what the children thought of that? If ever you had a puppy or a kitten in your house, uh, your kids go gaga for it. Look, uh, my brother-in-law and his family in Fushun, China, their dog there has just had puppies. I suppose really she's a bitch, but it seems strange to say that in these, these politically correct times. But anyway, she's had lots of puppies, beautiful little things. The whole family's gaga. I mean, my brother-in-law, he's pick, picking them up and petting them, and he's showing them to me on a video call. They're just crazy for these animals. A lamb is an innocent little thing. They're very frisky, they bounce around, and they look so cute, and the kids would have just got so fond of this lamb. On the 14th day, the lamb was killed. Now, the adults understood, but imagine to the children, Daddy's going to kill Larry the lamb. And the father has to explain, without the shedding of the lamb's blood, there is no deliverance. If they're leaving Egypt that night, that little lamb has to die. And its blood is going to guard the entrance to that house. So in faith, the head of each household applied its blood to the doorposts and lintel. Protection from judgment was applied at the place of entrance. That angel of death wouldn't touch those houses where the blood was. And really, when that man put it on, he didn't know whether this was real, unreal. Moses had told him to do it. Aaron had told him to do it. What was going to happen that night? But in the morning, every Egyptian household had at least one dead person. You just think it's the oldest child. No, maybe the father uh, was the oldest in his household. So the, the, the woman, the wife, was not only, not only had lost a child, she'd lost a husband as well. All across Egypt, many people died. Every firstborn in the land, even of the animals, died. The death toll was absolutely alarming. I tell you what, you touch God's, God's elect, touch what's precious to God, God help you because... He can be a vengeful God. He's a merciful God. But you don't touch that which is precious to him. And I actually fear for some of the the people in these communist countries who persecute Christians because they're drinking judgment to themselves. One day they'll face the God of Israel. And uh, they're the ones that need our prayer. I know we pray for the persecuted church, and we should. But really, it's a... I remember I read Corrie Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. Oh, we can't go there. Another time. Um, So the blood was on the place of entrance. And um, that's what we need to guard. It's our eyes and our ears that cause us problems. The things we see in the world these days, we don't need to see all all of them. You know, I remember when I was younger, I'd listened to the BBC in this country. When I lived in in, uh, Kentucky in the 1980s, 
the local public radio station not only had the American news, but for a few hours they carried the Canadian news. I lapped this stuff up. You know, now I turn on the news, I think just enough to know what's going on. Thank you very much. I don't need to hear all this stuff all the time. It's darker and darker and darker. And the, the TV, yeah, I like a good movie, my favourite thing. But when, when I see the things that are going on in the world, just enough to know, thank you very much. My soul doesn't need to be corrupted by seeing the, the evil that's being perpetuated and, and the, the, the way they rejoice over things which are actually diametrically opposed to God. Um, it's just, we, we need, to, need to just guard our eyes and ears sometimes. So the Lamb went through the judgment of fire. Each Israelite ate bitter herbs with the Passover lamb. They didn't need bitter herbs that night. However, since then, the bitter herbs have been a reminder that Israel were slaves in Egypt. The lamb was rose whole because Yeshua was undivided. The method of corporal capital punishment they used, the, the cross, actually was invented by the Persians. The most painful method they could find up with, but he was undivided. He was sacrificed for us, not only as a sin offering, but the burnt offering. His sacrifice was like that sacrifice of the lamb or the bullock at the altar, wholly acceptable to God. God accepted that sacrifice on our behalf. And those inward parts, the pertinences, some good Kentucky word, uh, they speak about the thoughts and inward emotions of the Messiah, and they are precious to God. If you're a married man, you see your wife hurt, doesn't that affect you? You don't want your you, you want your wife to to be at peace, be in joy. Um, this this week, my wife was a little stressed out. She was going around Tucson, paying bills at various places, and and finally, I had to get her on the phone to talk to our bank because there'd been a problem. And, and she was just by the time it was over, she burst into tears, and and, and I realised I just put her through too much, and I, and I felt so regretful about it. That's how God feels about His Son. The very pain, those inward thoughts of Jesus as he went through Calvary, those are precious to God. And that's why that picture of the Messiah that was coming, um, that lamb was roast whole. And what was left of the morning, that was burnt with fire. Uh, because every bit of it represented something about the coming Messiah and was precious to God. And in faith, the Israelites were ready to leave as God's final judgment was to fall on Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 13, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Judgment passes over Israel because of the blood of the Lamb, not because they were the natural seed of Abraham. God didn't look and say, oh, those descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're safe. No, it was the blood that saved them. And God doesn't have grandchildren. Marla and Molly can't say, well, I'm all right because my mum's a wonderful Christian and my dad is Pastor Barry. So, no, no, no. They have to have their own relationship with God's righteous Messiah. The blood has to be appropriated in their own lives. And I'm sure it will be, but... We are not God's grandchildren. We are God's children. Verses 14 through 16. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it 
a feast by an ordinance forever. Forever. Until Messiah comes? No, forever. Until Messiah returns, his feet touch the Mount of Olives? No, forever. Through the millennium? Yes. To the eternal state? I don't know, but it says forever. So maybe in the New Jerusalem, one of the things we'll do every year is have Passover. I don't know. It looks that way from what I read here. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your house. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Remember, this is law. This is instruction. This is not the, the grace that we know today. Um, because these are uh, pictures God's giving them. He's teaching them things through this. So if you start taking this teaching lightly, then it loses its awe. In the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save which every man must eat. That only may be done for you. So what he's saying here is, the first and last days of um, unleavened bread, matzos, uh, are to be like Sabbaths. You won't go to work on that day. You, you won't do manual labor. With one exception, you will be allowed to prepare food. Now, the weekly Shabbat, they prepare the food on Friday before sunset. Uh, and some households have something to keep it warm overnight. Others just eat cold food on Shabbat. There's no food preparation on Shabbat. But this is different. He's saying, yes, in this instance, you can prepare food. But that's the only work they could do on the first and last days of, of um, unleavened bread. And immediately after Passover, immediately after this feast the salvation of Israel from Egypt, pointing to our salvation uh, from the world, from our own sin, from unrighteousness, uh, is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it speaks of feeding on the word. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a feast celebrating fellowship with God. The salvation was Passover. Now there's fellowship with God, peace with God. And the seven days represent a complete number. And we're to feed on his word, uncorrupted by natural communication. Um, and it speaks to us about the one who had no sin, our righteous Messiah, the perfect Jew. Exodus twelve fifty one. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. And it came out by their armies... No one struggled out of Egypt. No one limped out of Egypt. Uh, as they ate that Passover lamb, I believe they were healed and made whole. And uh, they were all strengthened for the journey to the Sea of Reeds. They ate that full meal. As soon as Pharaoh told them to go and told Moses he never wanted to see him again, the people of Israel started to march out. And they marched out by... And they marched out... Uh, um, with the wealth of the Egyptians, each had borrowed from the Egyptians the day before. They took that wealth with them. Was that theft? No. They were owed uh, several generations of back wages, and they took it with them. So nowadays on the Passover table, there's a shank bone of a lamb, a hard-boiled egg, bitter herbs, chorosis, it's a clay-like substance made from apples and nuts, and unleavened cakes of bread, matzos a glass of salt water and four cups of wine. And there's an empty seat for Elijah, lest he should come and announce Messiah. And all leaven, which represents sin, 
has been removed from the household. The house is brightly lit because Israel had light in Goshen while the rest of Egypt was in darkness. The father washes his hands and pronounces a blessing. Then the youngest child at the table asks four questions. What is different? What makes this night different from all other nights? On all nights we need not dip even once. On this night we do so twice. On all other nights we eat hammocks or we eat matzah. On this night we only eat matzah. So we eat leavened bread or unleavened bread. But on this night only unleavened bread. On all nights we eat any kind of vegetables. On this night maror, bitter herbs. On all other nights we sit eating upright or reclining. On this night we, we are all reclining. And then the father... He actually starts with the words, I was a slave in Egypt. Of course, he wasn't a slave in Egypt. He was a slave in Egypt in his distant ancestors' loins. But he starts, I was a slave in Egypt. And he recites the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And he talks about each judgment in turn. He explains each symbol on the table. And this takes about two hours. A bit like one of my messages. Uh, The family rejoices remembering what God did for, for their ancestors, Of course, the feast is not only memorial, it is prophetic. A great deliverer is still awaited. And the three matzos, little square cakes of of, uh, unleavened bread. I wanted to bring some with me, and I I finished preparing this. They popped round to Waitrose. They don't have them anymore, so I couldn't bring them. But I I know Gerald um, has seen seen matzos, and Diane has seen them. Um, But they're they're square pieces of unleavened bread. Uh, Actually... Uh, Jewish housewives tend to get fed up with matzahs and they try to do interesting things like make matzah ball soup and I always always no 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 I like them as they are and quite I I literally tear off a piece of matzah and I was perfectly happy with it oh and put butter and jam on them great but most people don't particularly like matzahs there's there's always one so as the uh Three matzahs are arranged in a napkin so that one is at the center. It's called the afikomen, which is a Greek word, not, not a Hebrew word. During the meal, the head of the family takes the afikomen, breaks it in two, hides half away, and he breaks the rest and shares it with the family. Um, each family member receives a piece. And at the end of the meal, children search for the unbroken half of the afikomen and put it back on the table. There was one who was broken for us, but he's coming back. As the head of the household recites the judgments on gods on the gods of Egypt, he dips his finger in a cup of wine and makes drops of of uh, red wine, looking like blood. And at the end of the meal, those present sing "Dienu," "Dienu," "Dienu." It's a Jewish song, and uh, it's sung in Hebrew. But I'll give you the English. It's, it's, it's very lovely. If God had taken us out of Egypt and not made judgments on them, that would have been enough for us. Diana means it's enough or it was sufficient. If God had made judgments on them and not made them on their gods, that would have been enough for us. If God had made judgments on their gods and not killed their firstborn, it would have been enough for us. 
If God had killed their firstborn and not given us their money, that would have been enough for us. If God had given us their money and not split the Red Sea for us, that would have been enough for us. If God had split the Red Sea for us and not taken us through it on dry land, it would have been enough for us. If God had taken us through on dry land and not pushed down our enemies in the sea, it would have been enough for us. If God had not pushed down our enemies in the sea and not supplied all our needs in the wilderness for 40 years, it would have been enough for us. If God had supplied all our needs in the wilderness for 40 years and not fed us manna, it would have been enough for us. If God had fed us manna and not given us a Shabbat, it would have been enough for us. If God had given us a Shabbat and not brought us close to Mount Sinai, it would have been enough for us. If God had brought us close to Mount Sinai and not given us the Torah, it would have been enough for us. If God had given us a Torah and not brought us to the land of Israel, it would have been enough for us. If God has brought us to the land of Israel and not built his temple, it would have been enough for us. And after each verse, there's the chorus, die, die, enu. Enough. And then, immediately after Passover, between two and six days after Passover, depending when the next Sabbath occurs, is the first of, the, I'll try again, the Feast of first fruits. And it doesn't seem very significant tucked in there. Uh, at that time of the year, the first barley stalks have grown, and these will perhaps be in a watered part of a field with good sunlight. And the, the uh, custom, the, the law for the, the Feast of first fruits was a few stalks were lifted up out of the earth and given to the priest or the Kohen. And he went into the holy place in the tabernacle and later in the temple, and he waved them before the Lord in each direction, the east, the west, the north, the south. And it was saying, thank you, by faith we see a full harvest coming in. This is just the first fruits, but we believe God will give us a full harvest. And that was the day that started the count to Shavuot or Pentecost. They counted seven, seven Sabbaths in the next day. Uh, and so 50 days later was Shavuot or Pentecost. But there's a spiritual application of this. this. It is actually a prophetic of something else, and it's actually rather wonderful. See, we, we, there's something that we don't always see. See, the spiritual application is we have an enemy, death. And I think in this church we're very aware of death at the moment. We've lost someone who's a very precious part of our, our, our church, our congregation. But we have this enemy, and death has been very successful. It's a very successful enemy. It's had a 99.9999 recurring success rate. You can count on the fingers of one hand of the people who haven't died. Okay? Um, we know that Enoch didn't die. He used to walk with God. And every night they walked past his house and, and God would say, Enoch, you're home now, good night. And one night... They didn't go to Enoch's house... They went home to God's house instead. Then there was Elijah, who was raptured, taken up in a chariot. But apart from that, death has been very successful. I'm not talking about people who were resurrected and then died again. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but that was temporary. Eventually he died again. There have been quite a few of those in history. But people have actually um, not died. I can only think of those two. There may have been others, but I can only think of those two. So death has been very, very successful. But Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, otherwise known as the first day of the weeks. In John 20, 17, Yeshua, or Jesus, told Mary, or Miriam, if we use her Hebrew name, touch me not, for I'm not yet ascended to my Father. 
But go to my brethren and say unto them, I send unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. So Mary or Miriam is not allowed to touch him. But later that day, he invites the disciples to touch him. So what happened in between? Remember that priest going into the holy place? Jesus ascended that day, presented himself to the Father as the first fruits from the dead, the first from this great harvest of people who will rise from the dead. He presented himself the first one. Death was defeated. And he's the first fruits of those that have come back from the dead. And 50 days later, a great harvest began. Um, actually, in the Bible, in the New Testament, you'll often read about the first day of the week, and I believe it's usually Tamiaton Sabaton, which I'm reliably informed means the first day of the weeks, plural. And it's a reference to that first of, uh, feast of first fruits, which of course to the early believers would be very, very important. That was the resurrection day. And. Are okay? Okay. Exactly 50 days from first fruits comes Shavuot or Pentecost. This is in the midst of the harvest, immediately after the wheat harvest. And it was at Shavuot that Torah or the law or instruction was given to Israel. And it's considered the birthday of Judaism. The birthday of the Jewish people is Passover. But Judaism starts with Shavuot on Mount Sinai. And in the morning of, uh, of Shabbat, the, the, the Jewish people today gather in synagogue. They remember that event. They actually cover their face with their tallit, uh, remembering that, that they couldn't look at the glory of God that day when God gave the, the, the uh, stones with the law on them. And, and uh, then in the afternoon, they'll sit quietly in synagogue, and each one will open his own Tanakh and read the story of Ruth. Because Ruth is a tranquil yet dynamic love story that demonstrates Torah in action, protecting and keeping Israel. Actually, I just think it's, it's the most beautiful story. I often think that uh, for us, our Messiah, Messiah is like Boaz, the successful farmer who rescued this poor Gentile girl. And we had nothing, and yet Jesus, who had all the wealth of heaven, put it aside, came and rescued us, took us into his own home. I, just, I, I, I just love that. Um, but Pentecost, or Shavuot, is also the birthday of the church, consisting of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, on that day, they presented two loaves, but they weren't unleavened bread, they were actually leavened bread. And the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, came on the day of Pentecost and a great harvest began. That first fruits back from the dead was a sign of a harvest that began. And from that day to this, people all over the world, in, of every race, in every country, every language group, have been people harvested, born again, who are going to have abundant life eternally. And they've all been brought into a covenant relationship with Adonai, the God of Israel. And the giving of the law, 3,000 perished because of the matter of the golden calf. As Moses was receiving the law, they were building and worshipping an idol. 
and 3,000 died. But at the giving of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 found abundant eternal life. 3,000 came to know the Jewish Messiah. I think most of them were actually Jewish at the time. Lots of people came from all over the world for Passover and for, for Shabbat and for the other holidays, but they, they were people from around the, the Grecian world, the Roman Empire, they were mainly Jewish to come to town. There may have been a few Gentiles, but I think by and large they were Jewish people then because since then it's been mainly Gentiles that have, have come in. And at this time, the priest offered the two baked loaves to Adonai, and these were 11 loaves, because the church consists of Jews and Gentiles and exists for about 2,000 years. And the church is pure by faith only. We know that corruption exists within the visible church. You'd have to be an idiot not to see that what purports to be the church in Christendom is corrupt and is not pure and set aside for Messiah. But we believe that there are believers who are, are clean because of the blood of Jesus, a true born-again church, uh, actually not just within Christendom, but around the world. Um, so the prophetic aspects of the first four feasts have been or are, are being historically fulfilled. Uh, next time, on April 28th, we will discuss the four feasts, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. These feasts are also prophetic, but not yet fulfilled. They look forward to Messiah's second coming, the millennium, and actually the eternal state as well. Uh, now, no human could have given this great plan of salvation. It came from a heart of love. God has an unspeakable love for this lost race and has made a way for us to worship and enjoy him. I'm going to end with the words God gave to Aaron to say over the children of Israel. And because you're born again, you know him, you're part of the Commonwealth of Israel. Not Jews, not Israel proper, but Commonwealth, just like we think Canadians, Australians are Commonwealth to, to Britain. We part of the Commonwealth of Israel. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, and say unto his sons, On this wise shall you bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Thank you, Pastor Barry. Well, thank you, Adrian. Really appreciate that. You know, Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the very scriptures we've looked at this morning, that he was buried, again, what we've looked at this morning, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what Paul says the gospel is. And it's all summed up in those feasts. The model is incredible. And given the fact that those feasts were given some 1,400 years or so before Jesus came, it's staggering to realize that the detail in those feasts that was fulfilled in the events that took place during Passion Week is overwhelming. Next week we're going to build on that as we look at some of the proof and the evidence for the resurrection and just try and tie some of these things together. So again, thank you for that.